We all know things don't go quite the way you plan, but sometimes they go very south. And in 2020, my business seemed completely turned upside down. That ability, no matter what happens, to stop and go, okay, I can't change this. What story do I want to tell when I come out of it? How is it going, ladies and gentlemen? This is Sean Barnes. I want to welcome you back to The Way of the Wolf. Our guest today is a gentleman named David Giltner. He is an author of multiple books, a scientist, an adventurer, storyteller, and his primary focus in life right now is helping scientists better understand how to operate in the business world. David, welcome to The Way of the Wolf. Thank you, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. We had a great conversation the other day. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I think we have very similar mindsets in that we grew up highly technically proficient in a certain domain or were very passionate about what we did, and that wasn't necessarily having anything to do with effective communication or understanding a business. It was just a passion for technology for me. And for you, it was a passion around science. So can you open up and share a little bit about who you are, what your journey has looked like, and what you're doing now? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm a physicist by training. Uh, back in, I guess, when I headed off to college, I liked music and I liked science. And <laughs> I was trying to decide what do I do. So I enrolled in a few music courses and I enrolled in some science courses. And along the way, I decided there's probably more career opportunities or at least more productive career opportunities as a scientist. So I declared physics as a major. And really, the, the path from there for quite a while was following what I think of as kind of this traditional scientist approach. You realize uh, partway through undergrad that if you're going to be a scientist, well, you need to go to grad school and get a PhD. And so then you do that. And you're sort of imagining at the same time that, well, if I'm going to be a scientist, where do scientists work? Most of them work at universities doing research. So I would do that. But everything changed about the last year of my uh, physics, my PhD work, when I decided after watching the professors around me and my advisor, maybe that's not the career path that I want. And so what else do I wanted to do? And that took me out into industry. Uh, I knew nothing about it. Uh, and that really sets up the story for why I do what I do now. I all of a sudden had to decide how I was going to build a career out in business, essentially, as a scientist. And I knew nothing about it. My advisor, you know, I remember when she said, if you want an academic career, if you want a postdoc appointment, I can help you. If you go into industry, you're on your own because I don't know anything about it. I don't know anyone there. So I had to figure out how to find job opportunities, how to convince people that I could actually do the work in a company, and I didn't at the time even know what was done in companies, really. So anyway, and after about um, probably around 15 years or so, I had an opportunity to write a book. I was between jobs, and I, I uh, met a publisher and wrote a book. That, in that book, I interviewed a bunch of scientists who, who worked in industry to tell their stories because I thought this would be a great book. I would love to have had this book myself when I was – uh, you know, hitting that, that story I just told, right? That's this one here. 
Got a job, went on, and I started doing this speaking circuit on the side. Well, as that developed even more, uh, at some point in 2017, I left my job and decided I wanted to do that full time, and that's when I started turning science uh, to develop. I, I took that one talk that I had been giving for several years, about seven years, and I grew it into several workshops and seminars. I wrote a second book, uh, and that's, that's what I do now. So it's kind of a complete career pivot. Started following this traditional path and ended up doing my own thing, kind of inventing something and doing my own thing. Uh, okay, there's a lot to unpack there, but the one thing that I want to start off with, how did it feel getting up on stage? the first few times you did it because as a scientist someone who's hyper focused on data and information i can only imagine how scary that had to have been what was that like for you yeah uh, so it, certainly it was scary now interestingly i mentioned that i'm also a musician uh so it wasn't the first time i did it as a scientist was not the first time i got up in front of people performing in a band back in high school was actually the first time and now those were very terrifying. <laughs> and so it's a little hard to say. I think that probably helped the first time I was I gave a presentation. But certainly, that's pretty scary. I mean, that was totally new, because now I'm talking about something. I, I was an undergrad, I was working on my bachelor's. And in the audience are plenty of people who were full professors and knew a lot more about physics than I did. Yeah, so that that was that was pretty tough. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I, mean, okay, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but it is something that I see a lot of people struggle with. And a friend of mine, he's been a guest on the show, he actually coaches people on how to overcome their fears of public speaking. Because I don't remember what the number is, but statistically speaking, it is a very high percentage of the population that is petrified of getting up on stage. And, and I have to commend you on, one, being in a band and doing that so young, but then, two pivoting into the science world and then getting up on stage as we'll say a junior scientist and speaking to all of these professors and professionals and people that are experts in their field so the last question i have for you on that topic was how did it feel knowing that there were people in the audience that were likely much smarter than you were i mean that is the terrifying part of it, frankly, right? You know, I, so probably my experience on stage before helped me not be afraid of just the general idea of being up on stage. It was absolutely what you mentioned. It doesn't matter if I'm not afraid to be speaking in front of somebody. If I say something wrong and somebody calls me out on it, <laughs> you know, no amount of, of uh, being comfortable with the idea of speaking is going to fix that. Uh, so <laughs> I had, it had to be a blend of preparing and anticipating questions I might get in preparing for that. And part of it is just, uh, you know, I don't know, there's a difference between confidence and courage, right? Confidence is you've prepared or you have some kind of data, I'll say as a scientist, experience that leads you to think, okay, I can do this. But there's, there's always going to be an element where you simply need courage and say, yep, this could go wrong. And I have to realize ahead of time, I'm not going to die. <laughs> and so, and do it anyway and take that risk. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about these books. You've written a few books, right? I've written two, I've published two, and I have a third that I'm working on. The manuscript, manuscript is probably about 90% uh, done. 
Okay, so talk me through the first book, the title, and the, the story. I guess you kind of shared a little bit about the story behind it, but what type of content is in that book? And then let's hit the next one. Sure. So the first one is this one here, Turning Science into Things People Need. And that's love the one. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's the one I wrote back in 2010. And that was, you know, I had no idea where this would go. It was, like I say, I was between jobs. I, I met this publisher who was helping people do interview books, where you interview a bunch of people who are working in a field or somehow know something about a topic that you are interested in. And this publisher would help you transcribe and edit the interviews and publish them. And I thought, great. At the time, I was looking for a job, and I remembered that whole struggle of being a scientist trying to convince business people that I could help them. And so that's what I did. And so the book itself, the content of the book, is almost exclusively uh, these interviews. So I just went out and found, I did 15, 16, and, and took the 10 best and put them in here. There's very little of my own content because I hadn't really thought about this at all at the time. And so, um, but I, I like that tagline, turning science into things people need, because I think that's what we do in the private sector. And this is one of my themes that academic research is great. Kind of that traditional career that I originally thought I was aimed at. New knowledge is what we create in academic research. That's valuable, but the knowledge itself doesn't do anything. It's only when you bring it out into business and commercialize something, turn it into a solution for people, that's when it really finds its value. And that is turning science into things people need. That's what we do. And by that time, I had spent, you know, close to 15 years doing that. Um, I'm a, I, lasers is my thing. And so I had developed laser products, laser technologies for a variety of things. Yeah, you know, lasers. Yeah. You ever put them on shark's heads? I, I have not, no, but <laughs> but I've gotten a lot of mileage out of that. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine so. Like my eyes lit up like a kid yeah. at Christmas when you said lasers. <laughs> yes, I mean, it's yeah, it's great. Uh, years ago, actually, when I was a grad student, a friend of mine was a fifth grade school teacher, and I went and visited his classroom and gave a talk, and it was pretty funny, all of the questions from these fifth graders about lasers. You know, can you blow stuff up, and can you... <laughs> Oh, perfect. Okay, so talk me through your second book. So the second book is a pandemic uh, baby, you know, so I in 2017, I started my company, I started traveling. All along the way, I had developed all these different ideas. And especially as I developed these workshops, that's when I really started to get my own ideas. I had met a lot of people who had struggled to make that transition. I talked to a lot of industry managers who struggled with their PhD scientists who came in and continued to behave like they were in academic research. I mean, there's a number of differences. And I just had a lot of different ideas. Well, I travel a lot normally for my business. You know, m most of my products are workshops given at either conferences or universities. When the pandemic hit, I was actually in Germany. I had a month of business over there traveling around. And all of a sudden, I had to come home and cancel everything, like most of us, right? And I sat here in my office for a while thinking, <laughs> you know, all kinds of things I, I won't say here. But at some point, you know, I, this is a, a kind of a resilience thing, I guess I've had to learn through my career and life. I decided, all right, I can be mad about this, but that's not going to help anything. What story do I want to tell about this down the road? And what I want to do is not just say, well, the pandemic sucked and I'm just glad it's over. But I'd much rather tell the story that says, yeah, it was, there were a lot of things about it I didn't like, 
but I embraced it and I found a way to make the best of it, to actually use it in certain ways. And one of those ways was I thought if instead of being on the road, I'm going to be sitting here in my office, now is a great opportunity to write that second book where now I put my ideas in it, not just a bunch of interviews and other people's ideas. That was great for the first book, but what about my own ideas? And the title is It's a Game, Not a Formula, because that was a slogan that I had come up with to, if I were to consolidate everything that's into the book into one theme, or you could call it a mnemonic because I use it myself all the time, it's exactly that. It's a game, not a formula. Reminding scientists when you move from the research lab where you're looking for a right answer, and it's really about a right answer, things you can publish in journals and books and say, hey, this is the right answer. You get out in business, you know this <laughs> well, Sean. There are so many questions that have no right answers. So many times where you have to take an action and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. We're not used to that. We work in the lab and we analyze our results. And by the time we publish, not 100% confident, but very confident we've got the right answer and something we can stand behind. Business is not about that. It's like a game where you have to take chances and you don't know the outcome. And there's no one way to win. There's no single right answer. Knowledge alone isn't good enough. It's a totally different game. And so that's what I put in this. It talked about, uh, you know, what are the rules in academic research and what are the rules in industry? How are they different? What are the habits? I, I like to say there's, there's five key habits that scientists who are successful in industry learn quickly. And I go on, I talk some about the startup world because I say that's the ultimate game. Um, and that's, you know, there's, there's the key elements, I guess, that are in that book. Well, don't leave me hanging. What are these five habits? So the five habits, so the first one is instead of being interested in something in just novel information, the first one is they, scientists who are successful in industry learn to help the company make money because that's why it exists, right? It's there to earn a profit. No matter what awesome, amazing products your company is building, you know, things to help people, turning science into things people need, you've got to help them make money or they won't be here in six months. So that's the first one. Second one is they learn to figure out what matters and what doesn't. All kinds of pressures that you are faced with and you can't do it all. And some of it turns out not to really be that important. So you have to learn, and there's no right answer to this, but there's an art of learning what is going to matter and I have to focus on that and what won't matter and I forget it and don't waste my time. Third, <laughs> this is a good one for scientists. I say scientists who are effective in the private sector are effective, not smart. <laughs> we get used to, we are trained in an environment, you know, there's this intellectual competition and there's a right answer and knowing the right answer has value. In that game environment, it's about scoring points, right? It's about getting things done, not just being smart. Part of that also, the fourth habit is decide quickly with limited data. You know, when there's decisions, questions that have no right answer, at some point, you're wasting time if you continue analyzing, if you imagine that if once you have an infinite amount of data, you could make the perfect choice. That's just not the case. Far better if you have a couple of good options and you're not sure which one. I like to say, pick one and then work to make that the right decision. That's, so, so decide quickly. And the fifth habit is you have to persuade other people to follow you. Because when you're in a team environment where a lot of people don't have the same expertise you do, and where there's no right answer in the first place, proof 
doesn't do it. You persuade people, and we're not used to doing that. You know, we publish a paper, we expect that anyone else can read it, and if we've done it right, agree, oh, yes, you've convinced me. This looks convincing, I, and I, the data speaks for itself. That doesn't happen in business. You know, if there's no right answer, you have to persuade people that, I don't know for sure, but I think this is the way forward. Let's do it. Well, I have to say that those are all relevant for people beyond just scientists. Those are actually really good things to, to be aware of. One thing that I personally have struggled with was number four, deciding quickly with limited data. Early in my career, I would struggle with paralysis by analysis. I would need more information, more data, and it was just how my mind worked because I wanted to be right. I wanted that right answer. And uh, it's something that I've I've come to realize these are there are certain people that are just wired that way and there's a tremendous amount of value that they bring to the table and the majority of the time people that think that way are right. And it's not that they're off the charts brilliant, it's that they're not going to say anything unless they know, without a shadow of a doubt, that they're right. But sometimes that means taking a long period of time to understand what you're looking at, to understand all of the data, to pull all the information together. And when you are running a business, you don't always have time. Speed is king. So back to your other point, you have to be able to make an informed decision, move in that direction and make it work. And if it starts to go down in flames, then pivot and adjust. You can't just stay stuck to it like this is my decision. I made it. Uh, my ego is so massive. I'm not going to change my mind. At some point you have to think, oh, okay, let's pivot here. We've got new information. Now we need to adjust and do this. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, we, we, as scientists, we, we know how to do that pivot and try things that may not work in the privacy of our lab. The difference is we, we <laughs> doing it where there's, you know, either the public is watching or a whole company of people are, uh, what they do hinges on what we say. That's the part where we are not comfortable. And yeah, I mean, as you know, that's a huge part of business success. So, David, was there a turning point for you in your career? Was there an event that flipped a switch to make you start to see the code in the matrix or better understand how all of this worked? Or was it an evolution that you experienced over time? I'd say it was more of an evolution, although relatively quick. Um, that evolution really happened during so in my last job. Uh, the one that I left when I started turning science in 2017. It was a company, uh, so lasers. One of the applications for lasers, we put combustion monitoring equipment that was laser-based uh, on big industrial furnaces. And so, uh, you know, it could be coal-fired boilers for making electricity. It could be steel plant uh, furnaces in a steel plant or furnaces in a refinery. But in that environment, I moved from a technical role into business development, product management, customer-facing roles, and I also worked quite a bit with both the vice president of sales and the CEO and reported directly to them for most of that time. And I guess the way I think of it, the reason the evolution was so rapid is, you know, this is a small company between 20 and 30 people working with these executives. You know, the, we talked about how scientists tend to think, 
business people, if they're any good, they were groomed in that game kind of approach um, through their whole career, right? And they're pretty good at it. They understand uh, that you need to decide quickly, that you don't, you're not going to have the right answer and you're just wasting time if you keep looking. And so working directly with them and seeing that really helped me see things that I already knew, but kind of that contrast between how you succeed in business and how I had learned to find the right answer as a scientist. And I think that's within the space of a couple of years uh, and that really, that's when I, I really saw so many things all at once. You know, this is how you play the game and it is a game and this is why so many business people struggle when they hire PhD scientists. Their technical skills are very valuable and they need them. It's the working habits. They, until they understand it's a game, there's a disconnect and that's where the problem often is. Okay, this might sound like an odd question, but David, why do you think you were able to come to this understanding and so many other peers of yours may struggle? That's a great question. I've wondered that many times. I don't think I have anything special. You know, I don't know. Um, but I have spent a lot of time working with customers, even though my role for most of my career was technical. Pretty early on, I started getting invited to visit customers. Just working with technically complex products, uh, many of the salespeople would, would invite me along so that I could explain to their engineering, the customer's engineering team, how things worked. And I guess I, I tend to be more of a listener in group meetings than a talker and I just a lot of time to sit and kind of watch what's happening and and I don't know I you know like I say until that kind of inflection point that I just described in my last job I don't think I could have described this to you that clearly but somehow I was collecting that data and realizing this is a different game even if I wasn't even if I couldn't have used that terminology Whenever I think about my journey and, and my background, the majority of my life I've been in IT, very focused on data and information. And I look back six years ago when I had the opportunity to start leading human resources and quickly recognized, oh, wow, this is a whole different world dealing with emotions and people and thought and motivators and things like that. And it took me a little while, I would say probably a year or two to kind of get my feet under me and start to shift how I was actually viewing all of these these people and these situations and things that we were going through. And looking back, I came to this realization that I had started to view people as data sets. I knew David has written a couple of books. David is a scientist. He likes to travel. He's an adventurer. So I'm starting to formulate this, we'll say, mental profile of who David is and what motivates him, what inspires him. And when you're, you are able to start viewing people in that way, it allows you to then align that with the strategic direction of the business so that there's some continuity there. And you can create a high-performing team where people do what they love because you know what they love and you're creating that environment for them. And so I think that you and I have kind of gone through a little bit of a similar journey, but for me, that was the turning point. It was really beginning to look at people as data sets. And I understand whenever I have conversations with HR professionals, they look at me like I'm 
bonkers, but it, it's worked well for me based on how my head is wired. Yeah, I think that's a great story. And honestly, that doesn't surprise me at all. I think technical skills, whether it's IT, the things you're describing, or the scientists that I work with, I think those skills and the strengths that we develop, the problem solving, the data analysis, the tendency to organize things that way, I think those strengths have value pretty much everywhere. What it requires is a balance. And, and this is, like I say, when I, when I mentor scientists, uh, those strengths are, have a lot of value in business, but you also have to learn when not to use them. Well, let, so let me give you an example. Many of the scientists that I've interviewed, I've interviewed scientists for my second book and for my third as well, many of them are entrepreneurs. They started their own company, which is something a lot of people wouldn't imagine scientists might do. You know, starting a business from the ground up feels very different than the stereotype we have of a scientist. But many of them are very effective at it if they are able to balance scientist strengths that work so well with the game philosophy that is required for business. And some of them, one of them in particular is a scientist named Marina, who uh, graduated from Harvard and started a, a biotech company in Boston. And she said, when, when I was talking to her, she said, well, one of the things that I find valuable being a scientist in starting a business is my focus on data and data analysis. I find that really helps me make a lot of data-driven decisions. And that made a lot of sense. But she said also one of the challenging things, though, is that I can't always use data. There are also decisions in many gray areas where I can't use data to make a perfect decision. And I have to know when data will really help the way you described, Sean, and when it won't because there's a right answer. Or at least it will not get me as far as I'd like. So, and what I've decided, again, back to that theme, I think it technical training, a technical person's skills, the way we tend to think, scientists, engineers, IT like you're describing, I think that has value in a lot of different applications if you can balance that discipline with the game philosophy and know when each is required. Then I think you become really powerful. With a lot of your clients being entrepreneurs and you being an entrepreneur yourself, and a lot of things that we cover on the show are around entrepreneurship. It would appear that you've kind of built a business where you're an author, public speaker, and, and teacher, and, and things like that. Um, are you a solopreneur, or do you have a team of people that work with you to help you coordinate and organize all this? How does that work for you? Yeah, a solopreneur would be the best way to describe what I do. Some of that is kind of 21st century, though, because I can do a lot of virtual help. Uh, you know, I can farm out a lot of the uh, services and things that I need to people and many times, sometimes around the world. Uh, some, you know, graphic design or the transcription on my YouTube videos or, uh, you know, a variety of other things. So what's the one of the biggest challenges that you have encountered as a solopreneur? Oof. <laughs> you know, I think one of the challenges is one of the things that I think scientists in general struggle with is disciplining myself not to try to do everything myself. I think we tend to be real DIY people, especially those of us. So I'm an experimentalist. You know, scientists tend to fall into experimentalists where you work in a lab or theorists where you do modeling on a computer. Experimentalists, we tend to be hands-on. We probably grew up 
Uh, many of us, you know, fixing things at home or, you know, my dad, my grandpa, way back to my great grandpa and beyond, that was a trend. So I tend to think if something, if there's a problem needs to be solved, I can probably do it myself. That too requires this balancing I was talking about because many times that's really valuable. But if I try to do that with everything, I'm going to be slow, I'm going to be ineffective. I need to know when I can do it myself and that really helps being able to be independent and learn independently and when I really ought to get somebody else to help me because they will be much better at it and I can go about the things that I'm really good at. I can tell that to you, I can describe that, but that doesn't mean I'm good at always doing it. I think that's one of my biggest challenges. <laughs> I catch myself all the time. Yeah, simple, not easy. I have to say I am guilty of that as well. I enjoy doing the editing for the podcast and creating clips and reels and things like that. There's probably different things I should be spending my time and energy on. Sometimes it's therapeutic and, and I enjoy it, but I really probably need to offload more of that. I do have someone that I work with that helps me and, and creates a, a lot of my reels and things like that. She does a phenomenal job on it. But that is something that I think a lot of solopreneurs and entrepreneurs that are just starting out with struggle with immensely because it could be a cash flow thing. It could be an ego thing. It could just be, oh my God, I've got to get all of this stuff done and maybe not trusting others to do it. So there's a myriad of factors at play. The biggest thing that's important is if you're starting out or a solopreneur, however you operate your business, being willing to delegate some of this work off. And if it isn't up to par, you have a conversation and say, well, let's do this, let's do this, and coach and guide and mentor them so that they know and on a long enough time horizon, you completely offload that off of your plate and they handle everything for you. So uh, skills that are necessary to learn, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a team leader or anything like that. So I guess my question is, do you have a lot of scientists that you work with that instead of starting their own businesses, maybe they're leading a team of scientists? And is there a lot of crossover with the skills that a, a team leader might encounter as with an, an entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Uh, there's, uh, in the end, I guess uh, a common element is hopefully they all have a vision. Certainly as an entrepreneur, solopreneur, you have a vision. I think a good team leader needs to have a vision. And somehow you are thinking about how do I get this done? And if you're going to be effective, both of them need to realize they can't do it all themselves and who is best to do that. You know, I've, I've spent a fair amount of time leading teams myself uh, in my career before I, I started my own thing. And that is something that you have to learn is uh, not just, so what am I thinking? It's not just a matter of you have somebody that has a job, you hired them for this, and they're the best person to do it. Leading a team sometimes involves moving people around, shifting responsibilities based on what you learn the human being you brought in can actually do, or you have something new. And a lot of that is it's, it's a blend of, it's a creative process, really, but also thinking how... What are the skill sets we need and how do we best move forward, even if it involves changing the model from what we thought we'd do a couple of weeks or years ago? And that's certainly what you do in entrepreneurship. <laughs> so what is your vision? You know, my vision, so the biggest reason 
that I'm doing what I'm doing now is I want to make a difference in the world in some way. And, you know, I say my career to date has been turning science into things people need. That has made a difference. But working in the spaces of combustion monitoring or telecommunications or scientific instrumentation just don't have the change that uh, I would like to make now. So there's really two branches. One difference I'd like to make is I'd like to help a huge number of scientists do much better at going out into the world and creating solutions, doing their own bit of turning science into things people need. But the other thing I would like to do is more of an institutional change. Universities don't do a very good job of preparing scientists for the careers they will actually have. Most of us, most universities, still train most of us to become professors. And most of us don't do that. I mean, the numbers alone say, you know, you can you hear different numbers around 5% will actually end up in academic careers. So 95% of us are not even being prepared for the careers that we will have. I'd like to see universities, these institutions change how they do that. Instead of training us all to become professors, they embrace uh, some of the great places that I've seen uh, around the world that do already do a great job. I'd like to see more do that. And so uh, part of what I'm doing is highlighting the gap so that universities will hopefully realize, hey, we need to do a better job of training, for the pe training people for the careers they will actually have rather than the careers we'd like them to have. I like that. So there's a lot of alignment in your vision and and mine. Mine is to impact the generational legacy of everybody that I work with. So there's some some alignment there, and I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Yours, I was taking notes. You want to be, let's see, you want to make a difference in the world in some way, and you started talking through a number, helping a number of scientists be better, and then the institutional change that you want to make. David, how do you quantify the impact that you are going to make? Ooh, I have, to, first thing that comes to my mind is I've probably not been very good at that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, in principle, if I were to keep track of every scientist I talk to and see what they've done, but I, I don't have a good, I'll say as a scientist, I don't have a good control experiment. I don't really know what they would have done otherwise. So uh, I, at best, at the moment, I can probably only imagine how much better they're doing. So that's probably not a very good answer. And on the institutional side, uh, every university that I visit that you know, makes a change uh, and changes their curriculum in some way or uh, whether they actually change their course curriculum or whether they start to encourage, you know, programs uh, that encourage scientists to, to develop skills around industry or whether they encourage their researchers, their, their faculty to collaborate with industry. That's another great way of exposing their students to the careers they will actually have. Uh, you know, if I do a better job at tracking that, I could quantify that improvement. But I, I think I'd have to say I probably don't do a very good job of quantifying that. Now, you've got me thinking about this. Now. <laughs> How do I do better going forward? Because Well, that was the intent. I thought, okay, well, because that's one thing that I've struggled with. I mean, my vision, it's, okay, how do I quantify that? Do I put a number on it? Do I look like that is something that's challenging to quantify. So if you figure that one out, definitely let me know. Might be able to piggyback off of you. Now, I do want to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole here. Whenever you talk about the universities and how they really are kind of almost preparing people to be professors in, in this specific field, it sounds like. 
I'm starting to see more of a trend where kids coming out of high school are maybe not as focused on going to university. They want to be an entrepreneur. They want to go out into the real world. And, and I think that makes sense. There are certain professions where you can absolutely go out into the real world if you want to start a, a gym business, for example. You might spend four years and $200,000 building a, a gym and be much farther along than if you spent $200,000 on getting a bachelor's degree in business administration and then try to start a gym. You're going to be 200000 in the hole and then starting something up. Whereas other fields, maybe STEM fields, obviously medical, legal, things like that, I think going to university is almost a prerequisite to be considered seriously for that. I'm curious on your perspective of that. Yeah, uh, that is an interesting trend. Uh, generally, I think that makes a lot of sense that there are career paths, uh, especially somebody wanting to start their own business, and maybe they don't need a degree. Maybe they are better off getting out and learning the game. Um, you know, so I have an uncle. This is an interesting experience. Not recently, he's older than me, but it, it speaks to the same idea. Uh, I remember when I was young, my parents really encouraged me to go to college and get a degree. Well, my uncle didn't and kind of knew, okay, he decided that he wasn't going to do that. Well, he's been very successful building a business in generally sales uh, and training other salespeople and doing that really well. And I've often thought, wow, that was a great example. He just decided, nope, that's not for me. I'm going to get out there. And the way I would say it now in the parlance of my book, he learned to play the game and started teaching other people to play the game. And he didn't need a college degree to do that. And I think that is absolutely true for a lot of people. Uh, it's not the STEM fields, right? There's, as you pointed out, there's just a background of knowledge you need to be functional in those. But I think there are a lot of people that went, have in the past have gone to college to get a degree not really knowing what they were going to do with it. And I'm not sure that's necessarily a good investment. You know, I think it's certainly possible. You, you come out in some ways more well-rounded. There, hopefully there's a social interaction that can be really good. Not always. Um, and that has value. But from a standpoint of building a career, yeah, it's, it's not necessary. And I think that's a good realization that... Uh, people are seeing if you especially somebody that has that intuition for the game <laughs> i think there's a good chance they could do really well and start their own business and and you know build it that way it's tough though going out on your own i mean it's it's can be very scary to to do that so there's it's almost like society has programmed us that having a college degree is a safety net for some reason. And while there still are a lot of companies out there that won't even consider you unless you have a degree, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, which actually truthfully boggles my mind. Some of the most intelligent and hardworking people I've ever encountered in my life graduated from high school and just started working, just started working like crazy. They learned everything. They're intrinsically driven, have tenacity and grit. And some of the most entitled lazy people I've met in my entire life had MBAs. And all they did was brag about their MBA. Now, for those of you listening that have an MBA, that's not everybody. I'm not, I'm speaking in generalities, just my experience. So don't blow me up. But I have noticed that trend. And so 
my takeaway is if you're young and college isn't your thing, you don't have to go to college immediately. Go out into the world, try your hand at opening a gym, try your hand at starting an air conditioning business if that's what you want to do. Go out and try those things. Don't feel trapped into this idea of I have to go to college or I will never accomplish anything in life. Yeah, I think that's really true. Uh, I mean, you you know this. Success comes from what you can do, what you do do. <laughs> and employability comes from what you can do. And your ability to show your employer, you know, prospective employer, you can do that. I mean, it's not so different than the third of the five habits I described, the be effective, not smart. Of course, being smart has value, but not all on its own. A degree has value, but not all on its own. It's what you're going to do with it. You know, it's, it's like any investment. What are you going to do with that? And, you know, the MBAs that you described that don't do anything, again, it's certainly not all of them, right? But if somebody got a degree thinking that that degree is going to do the work for them, ooh, that is the problem, right? There is the problem. If they got it and said, hey, there's some things that I can learn and here's how I plan to leverage it, that's valuable. And the same with any degree. Um, and the same with a PhD for the scientists that I work with, you know, uh, it's, it's, what did you learn to do along the way? And what are you going to do with that going forward? That's true in any level of education, high school degree, all the way up to PhD. Yeah. And, and I would actually argue that it could be more beneficial for you to go out in the real world for three, five, eight years, experience business, and then go to college because you have something to draw on. You have a body of experience to draw on to relate to the lessons that are being taught as opposed to this wall of words in a book that you're memorizing. And then years later in business, you think, oh, wait, actually, we might have read something about that. I think it's a really great point, Sean. You know, it's funny if I think back to my college years, I don't, uh, you, you know, you, you always knew the non-traditional students, you know, you've got one person in your class that is clearly 10 years older. And it was easy at the time to think, ah, they don't know what they're doing with their life. Ooh, I would think about that completely differently now because I realized, I mean, I, because science was a path, I feel I was pretty well directed and I invested it pretty well. So, but it's, it's easy when you head off to, to college at 18, 19, to not really know where you're going with it, what you're going to do with it. And you could easily not invest that time very well. Whereas if, as you say, you've been out in the real world, it's a great term for it. <laughs> and you see how the game is played. You could likely do a far better job investing your time to come back for a degree, because now you know what you're going to do with the information in a much better way. Uh, to learn and uh, to be able to use it in a practical sense going forward. If you had the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with any scientist, who would it be? Boy, you know, I think I'd have to say, uh, so Einstein has always been my favorite. And I know, you know, he's kind of the classic scientist, the genius and all that. But uh, that's not so much what impressed me about him. I, I think it's his imagination and, you know, what's often called the thought experiment, or scientists will often use the German term Gedanken experiment. Uh, I just think that is a really cool idea because that's a big part of science and that ability to think, gee, I wonder what, you know, uh, 
would happen if this was done. I mean, it's presumably, it's, it, the story is that he started thinking about his theory of relativity working at the patent office, which was kind of a boring job. It gave him time to think. And just looking across the street at a big clock that was on the building across the street and just thinking, what would that clock look like if I were moving at the speed of light? You know, the light comes off of the speed of light. What, what would it look like? First blush, you could say that. What a strange question. But obviously, there was a lot of value in it, right? Um, I don't know if you can see the, the poster I have over here is of Einstein. And the, the quote that is on it is one that he's known for, imagination is more important than knowledge. And as much as you might imagine, not you, people might imagine, well, in science, knowledge is the important thing, I think that really says a lot. Creativity and imagination are actually an important part of it, asking the right questions. Being able to say, instead of, this is again being effective, not smart, instead of saying, oh, I know the answer, or I'm smart, just being able to say, well, what do you think would happen if, and not feeling dumb doing that? Okay, you answered that beautifully. It was going to get real awkward because I was—I've been staring at that poster of Einstein behind you for the whole for this whole session. So that's kind of what led me to that. But I was not aware of the story that you shared about him sitting at the patent office and looking at the clock and starting to kind of cue up those thoughts that would end up being the theory of relativity. So that's. I didn't know that. Very impressive. I like it. It's it's a fun story about him, you know. Again, it's it's the imagination and just asking questions. That's that's the root of science. I don't know that it's how most people think of science, but it, it that's the human side, really, right? Which I think a lot of people also don't realize. Um, with your vision of wanting to positively impact the lives of all of these scientists. Is there one or two that come to mind where you've worked with them, you've coached them, you've mentored them, and you've seen a remarkable change in their understanding of the game or their understanding of business in, in the real world? And, and I guess maybe let me try to clarify this a little bit. I've had to by sharing an example. I've had people that I've worked with in the past that I saw a tremendous amount of potential and it took a lot of energy and effort to coach, guide, mentor, and build them to be able to achieve those things when all the while there was this element of self-doubt. Like, yeah, there's no way I can do that. That's not, no, I don't have any experience doing that. And then the end result ended up being something even far greater than I could have ever imagined. And so sorry, a very long-winded way of saying, have you encountered or had experiences with people that you've worked with like that? Yeah, a uh, boy, I mean, I think a lot of, uh, I've worked with so many scientists, I, I only have the bandwidth to stay in touch with them to so, you know, so much of a degree. LinkedIn is actually great for staying in touch so I can see when they get a job or when they can do whatever. So what I tend to get are little glimpses of when they get a, uh, a job or something happens and then often, especially if, you know, how LinkedIn puts up a thing that, you know, hey, I got a new job and you have an opportunity to congratulate them. Many of them, when I say I make a point of congratulating them, many of them will come back and relay what they learned from me in workshops or talking to me or whatever. So there's that. It's not everyone is not a huge victory, but a lot of little victories. But then there are some that I have stayed friends with 
Uh, one I think of, his name is Matt. Um, he actually invited me to give a seminar at Southampton in the UK really early before I actually started turning science. In the last year before I did that, when I was starting to experiment with new ideas, it was kind of the groundwork, I guess. I, if you'd asked me, I wouldn't have said, I'm preparing to start a company. I was simply thinking there's a need here and I think I can do more to address it. He worked with me to uh, try some new things in the time I was there. And I said, instead of just giving a one hour talk, can, can we try some other things, a few workshop ideas? And so I stayed in touch with him He's uh, moved to, he lives in Montreal now. He does a lot working with the public. And it's been really interesting to see how he has leveraged those skills and learned to play the game, you know, when going right into something that wasn't really a lab job. So, yeah, I mean, it's, those are very rewarding stories uh, and experiences. And, and uh, you know, they feed, especially on the tough days when, something isn't going the way I'd hope and, and uh, to remember, okay, I'm making a difference. I may not have it well quantified as we discussed before, but individual stories like that that make me think, yep, yep, that's what I'm trying to do and this is why it matters. It's good to have that feedback loop. No matter how long or short the loop is, having that feedback loop, it, it kind of helps verify or validate that you're moving in the right direction, you're doing the right thing. Oh boy, <laughs> it is it is very important to have that. Yeah, 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 it really helps. So, what is one of the biggest lessons that you have learned in this incredible career, in this journey of yours, that you would like to share with the guests? Oh boy, lessons. You know, I guess the thing, maybe the thing that comes to mind. I don't know if you'd call it a lesson. It probably is. It, it's probably the story that I mentioned about what story do I want to tell. You know, I, I've, I've had it several different times. The last time was when I wrote this book. Something went badly the way I had not planned. I'm a planner, you know, and, and we all know things don't go quite the way you plan, but sometimes they go very south. And in 2020, my business seemed completely turned upside down. That ability, no matter what happens, to stop and go, okay, I can't change this. What story do I want to tell when I come out of it? it? Let me back up. The lesson might be there's three ways I can deal with a big problem. One is I can let it crush me. Right? If something goes really bad in my life or my career, I can let it crush me. Well, that's not very good. Two, I can simply survive it. So that when I look back, I say, man, that was terrible, but I'm glad it's done. Well, that's better than letting it crush me. But that third one, that if I fully embrace it, if I accept it and realize, okay, this has happened, denying it, resisting it isn't going to matter, only then can I really make it into something. If I fully embrace it, can I make it into something? And that's what is related to that. What story do I want to tell afterwards? You know, how can I make this? That is a great, has been a valuable lesson. It's so easy to, you know, want to complain, um, blame, <laughs> but that's just not effective. And if I think about what story I want to tell, that kind of brings it all together in uh, what my next steps need to be then. You know, it's challenging when you're in the heat of the moment, whether it's some massive project with a, a tremendous amount of priority from senior leadership. They're just hammering away, have to get it done, have to get it done. There's so much emotional turmoil and exhaustion that comes into play that it can be extremely difficult to detach yourself enough 
to say, what is this trying to teach me? What is the story that I'm going to tell my listeners, my viewers, my friends and family about the lessons that I learned down the road? And maybe that's the key. Every time you get to that frazzled, emotionally charged state, stop and ask yourself, what is this trying to teach me? And it might detach you just enough to be able to view things through a slightly different lens and help you execute the way you need to execute. Yeah, I think that's really important. And it's really valuable. I mean, you're right. In the heat of the moment, when you're feeling frustrated, when you're feeling tired, when you're angry, it's hard to discipline ourselves to think about, okay, what's the right you know, the high emotional content, <laughs> emotional intelligence action here, what's the responsible thing to do. But, you know, whether it's the lesson, like you said, or to, for me, it's it's what story do I want to tell that somehow snaps me out of that. Because regardless of how I'm feeling, it's easy for me to imagine myself two years, five years down the road. And as soon as I do that and think, oof, Okay, I do know who I want to be. I, I, I may want to do the wrong thing today. <laughs> I may want to do the dumb or the irresponsible thing today. But if I think of myself in two years, that helps pull me out of that and think, okay, I, I need to step up again. And uh, because that's what it's about. What systems do you have in place so that you act in the moment the way you want and don't regret it later? Yeah. Thank you. Is there anything that you would like to leave the listeners with before we wrap up? Well, I think uh, the you mentioned that it's this concept of it being a game, not a formula, isn't just for scientists, and I think that's absolutely right. I think everyone can can, I think everyone to some extent looks for the right way to do things, the right answer. Right? It's always easy. You don't have risk, but if you embrace it as a game, if you take that attitude, okay, this is a game, and I like games. And those are challenging and you don't always win a game and that's okay. I think that's a great mnemonic. Like I say, I use it as a mnemonic, as a reminder. And uh, I think there's a lot of value in that. So I suggest everyone adopt that as a, a way to think about how do I approach this? How do people contact you? Uh, so the best place is uh, through my website, turningscience.com. That's the best way to find me. I'm also on LinkedIn. Either of those are good. I have a contact page on my website or on, my, on LinkedIn, David Giltner. I'm easy to find, especially if you combine it with Turning Science. Uh, and connect with me there. Follow me or connect with me. Uh, message me. It's a great way. That's my, my uh, biggest social media platform is LinkedIn. Perfect. I appreciate it. David, thank you so much for your time. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, our previous conversation, just so much alignment. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the great things that you're going to do going forward. Actually, can you tell us the name of your next book? Yeah. So Shaping the World is the working title. And then the subtitle is The Privilege of Being a Scientist in Industry. I think that may change better search, you know, better, better searchability, things like that. But shaping the world is the part that I really uh, I like the best because I think that's what we're doing. We're creating solutions and trying to make things better. Uh, I got that from uh, you know, some of the entrepreneurs that I've talked to. You know, that's really what they talk about, why they took that risk to do their own thing. I love it. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, that that is all we have for the show today. I will make sure that we have all of David's contact information, links to his books in the show notes below. Please leave comments, share your thoughts and feedback, share the show with friends and family. That's how we get it out there. There's no ads, never going to monetize this show. It's truly just about helping others out. So that is it for today. Thank you so much, and y'all have a good one. 